1: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Charles Pryor, and welcome to New Books in British Studies, a podcast of the New Books Network. I have to begin with the disclaimer. Normally, I begin these interviews with a short synthesis that puts that episode's book in context. I like writing these little intros. It beats copying the jacket blurb or just bumping straight into the author. A historian naturally responds to other historians in prose. Now the disclaimer. How the World Ended, which is itself a deft and cogent synthesis, challenges any attempt to synthesize it. If you're not familiar with the work of Jonathan Scott, it's enough to say that he's one of the most original interpreters of the early modern world. A New Zealander, he brings to this book concepts and approaches framed by his own global journey. This is a book about movement, about water, the interchange of ideas, of peoples and culture. At its center is the Anglo-Dutch relationship, and at its many peripheries, Scott reveals the transformative effects of that unique Republican pulse. Jonathan Scott is professor of history at the University of Auckland for where he joins me. Thank you so much for doing this.
0: Thank you very much, Charles, for speaking to me. I appreciate it.
1: So there's another New Zealander uh, historian, who's positioned himself biographically and situationally in his work, um, you do the same thing at the start of this book. It starts with a, a sort of an autobiographical journey uh, that took you uh, to this book in the context of your work. So talk about that journey and, and what it tells us about you and, and your sort of mission as a historian and how you've shaped your
0: career. Well, Charles, my first impulse is to deny that there's anything autobiographical in this book, but I agree that the introduction is it, it does begin in an autobiographical way. My, my younger sister criticised this um, when when she read it. Um, I I don't want to talk about myself in this book. I want to talk about the early modern period, a very different period in a different part of the world from the one I live in. But as your introduction correctly notices. Um, my approach to this subject over the last thirty-five years, and perhaps especially in this book, is influenced by what you call my personal journey. So um, I have uh, I have worked in a number of different universities in a number of different parts of the world. Uh, travel and and movement have been part of my personal experience, and I suppose most importantly, uh, in relation to this topic, I have always. As a New Zealander engaged with British history from the outside, my uh, initial education uh, was not British. I then for a long time taught in Cambridge uh, students who had been educated in British universities in ways very different from uh, my own. And I have continued throughout my career, I guess, to think about what I take to be the deeply... Fascinating and important, more English than British, early modern experience in terms of its relationship to historical experience more broadly. So I guess I'm still looking at it as an outsider.
1: So a big theme in your work um, has been the the very much uh, what sits at the centre of this book is the Anglo-Dutch relationship. Why is that relationship so significant for you?
0: I think. <clears throat> some of the reasons that i became interested in it from the very beginning of my historical career had to do with my doctoral subject the republican algernon sydney who was english but spent half his adult life outside the country including formative time in the netherlands and whose ancestors uh, family ancestors uh, had also spent important time in the Netherlands, including Sir Philip Sidney, who uh, was famously killed there. Um, but more broadly and since then, um, I've become more and more interested in what is has actually for a long time been an established theme. I mean, there used to be, for decades, regular conferences investigating the early modern, especially the 17th century Anglo-Dutch relationship. So it's long been recognized that it's very important. Um, as I have remained interested in it and become more interested in it, uh, what's really at the center of that interest is now is the idea that in the 16th and 17th centuries, the changes that England imported from adapted and, uh, uh, imported from adapted and and uh, used to transform itself uh, from the Netherlands would never have occurred in England if they hadn't been imported from the Netherlands for various reasons. And they would never have occurred in the first place anywhere other than the Netherlands because I've decided that uh, it's the things that were completely unique about the Netherlands, starting with the landscape that most importantly account for these developments occurring in the first place. So I've, what this book is trying to argue is that the entire world was transformed by a series of changes that began for very local reasons in the low countries and were then imported. Uh, by England and turned into transforming global developments in that way.
1: Right. So let's start with the first phase then, what you call sort of the, the Anglo-Dutch-American phase of early modernity. Can you talk a little bit about uh, industrialism, uh, what you call industrial revolution, a geography of invention, uh, the role of the sea in, in in that first phase that constitutes the first part of the book.
0: Yes. Uh, so I think what I want to say about that is that, um, first of all, what I'm arguing about this transformation is, is not primarily an argument about, well, uh, it's not first of all an argument about industrialization. It's first of all an argument about how it's came to be that agricultural societies changed and became post-agricultural. So uh, that is the process that in my book uh, begins in the Netherlands and it begins because agriculture is so much harder and more challenging in the Netherlands than in most other places. It's because of the local encroachment of water, especially seawater and salinity on farmland, that challenges the dutch to find other ways of making a living and simultaneously the what i call the water world of the low countries um, the ubiquity of rivers and canals and access to the sea and oceans offers a framework for alternative post-agricultural ways of making a living and quite quickly of becoming successful and becoming wealthy. So that's the first stage. How do we get to a post-agricultural economy?
1: So the second part deals with the Anglo-Dutch Revolution. I mean, this is the period of the English civil wars and the things that come out the other side. That's the, the very core of the book. Why do you see that moment that, that period, 1649 through 1653, and then onwards. Why do you see this as so incredibly formative?
0: Well, it's formative because uh, the things that the English are learning from the Dutch, and actually not only those things, uh, developments which have been happening independently of the Dutch domestically within England since the late 16th century and through the first half of the 17th century, are... Uh, Cease, stop being incrementally influential and become revolutionary in the way that they are taken up and used to entirely transform um, the English state. And uh, what the revolutionaries of 1649 to 53 want to do is transform not simply the state, but English society as a whole. Now, I... Um, I emphasize this partly because I claim in the book and will defend this claim that, broadly speaking, English historians of the 17th century have been in denial about the reality of a decisively transformational Republican upheaval in the middle of the century, but there's no doubt that this is what occurred. And among the immediate effects of this Republican revolution, so first of all, it was really Republican... Uh, secondly, it was profoundly influenced by the Dutch Republic. Um, uh, and thirdly, among its immediate effects were that it created, almost out of thin air, a major maritime naval sea power. And secondly, the very first actions taken by the sea power were to establish a transatlantic uh, Anglo-American framework for the development of imperial, naval, and economic power. So that four-year period of Republican revolution in mid-17th century England takes some crucial Dutch developments, uses them to transform the English state and also the English and Anglo-American empire in a way which over the subsequent 150 years will lay the framework for the later 18th century industrial revolution.
1: And then the the third uh, part of the book uh, is called Archipelagic State Formation. It talks about the, the it, it returns uh, to a, a fairly large chronology from the late 16th to the late 18th century. And you draw in uh, and connect the Anglo, the Dutch, and the American contexts uh, and focus on commerce and, and a number of large themes. And so what are the what, what do you see as then the big sort of movements that that come out from the English center? Um, how does the empire? How do these imperial worlds? How are they shaped and formed by the, these these Anglo-Dutch roots?
0: I think I want to say two things about that in in particular. Um, one has to do with what one might call uh, the formula for uh, uh, early modernity and industrialization or the anglo-dutch american process as my book calls it a two-part formula Uh, one is water and the other is republicanism if you put those two things together you get economic transformation first from agriculture to mercantile uh, economic activity and then in this case beyond that to industrialization so water plus republicanism um, which, by the way, before the Anglo-Dutch American process you could see exemplified in a city like Venice. So in, in the three, three centuries covered by my book, I'm saying, you know, w- one of the things that knits together the Anglo-Dutch American archipelago, this transatlantic uh, geographical uh, construct is water that connects them and all of the things that happen on water in this space. And the second thing that connects them is republicanism, that uh, it's absolutely crucial that uh, it's republicanism in the Netherlands that politically expresses and enables these economic transformations. It's a republican revolution in England that provides the opportunity to carry them decisively uh, across the North Sea, and it's a republican revolution in uh, America that helps to acclimatize them on the other side of the Atlantic. So that that's the first thing. And then the, the second uh, answer I will make briefer, um, my argument in this book is that uh, whereas historians have long been interested in the extent to which Europe's empires enabled economic transformation and industrialization uh, by... Uh, adding the wealth and resources that those global empires made available, my emphasis here is on a small subsection of England's early modern empire in uh, continental North America and its impact not through the resources that it made available, though those were quite important, but because of the uh, ability of a rapidly growing American, North American colonial population to uh, provide a market for British manufacturers in a way that had no other European imperial comparison.
1: So the the book um, goes across and cuts across events and contexts that uh, generations of historians have have dealt with and. And, and debated. Um, uh, it used to be that you know the, the middle part of the 17th century for early modern British historians was a was a, a battlefield littered with uh, historiographical corpses. Um, so this history has been been very very fine fine grained and, and and studied. But your approach is striking, and this book is striking, um, as is um, your your previous book. Uh, before this one, the way that you're breathing new life by focusing on things that tend not to have occupied uh, historians of the early modern British context, at least. Uh, and that's going to be things like environments, movement, uh, connections, networks, and writing at some sort of scale. Um, so where did, in, in your own development as a, as a historian, where did that interest in other things, environment, water, scale, connection, movement. Where did that crop in? Well, first,
0: uh, thank you for mentioning the history of historiographical corpses accumulating in the 17th century. I I fully expect that I, mine might be uh, the next one to be placed on top of the pile <laughs> or <have to> see <laughs> your... Um, your question is an interesting one because it's true that in the middle of my career, such as it has been. So about 15 years ago, environmental history, especially, but not only water uh, and the relationship between uh, terrestrial and maritime environments has become a big theme in my work. And, um, I can't entirely tell you, uh, why that is, but I can tell you that uh, when I was living in Pittsburgh in the United States um, about 20 or 15 years ago, and I had finished my book on Republican political thought called Commonwealth Principles and was thinking about a new direction. I wanted to do something new and began to work on the book that became um, uh, When the Waves Ruled Britannia. That was my decisive turn towards environmental and maritime history and i think i was actually very influenced by the fact that i felt beached and and um landed in this very terrestrial western pennsylvania environment and having grown up in an archipelago in the south pacific and i went in search of the ocean right yeah, because there's—I uh, mentioned in
1: my first question the New Zealander that I'm referring to, alluding to—is is actually a Londoner, and it's it's uh, John Pocock. Um, wrote a lot about looking at British history from various global standpoints. In his case, New Zealand, and then um, St. Louis, uh, latterly Baltimore. Uh, similarly, Brodell. Uh, contemplating the Mediterranean from the southern shore in, in North Africa. Um, what is it about looking at the history of small islands from different vantage points that helps us to see um, facets of that history that we didn't see before? Because it's striking that you see this the, this these ideas come to you when you're in Pittsburgh, which of course is at one point deeply central to the to the empire you're talking about.
0: Yes. Um, what is it about looking at small islands? I mean, I suppose one of the things about looking at small islands, I mean, it is relevant here, I guess, that New Zealand uh, is an archipelago in the South Pacific about the same size as the British Isles in a completely different part of the world, though the uh, geography that surrounds these two archipelagos is completely different um, geography that surrounds Britain is predominantly terrestrial, I would claim, rather than maritime. And um, The thing about New Zealand is it's at the bottom of this vast oceanic space. Anyway, it's relevant that, one, that I'm, I come from one archipelago and I'm looking at another. What is it about small islands? Um, the, the most important thing about small islands f- for me is that um, they look isolated until you start thinking about the ocean as a mode of connection rather than separation which is what was the case everywhere in the early modern period and then they become a way into uh world history and a way of a vantage point from which to explain connection rather than separation and to think about large scale um Uh, geographical and temporal frameworks. And this is something that I, a long time ago, corresponded with John Pocock about, about how coming from New Zealand somehow gives, eventually, if you you follow it in this direction, gives you a vantage point from which to look at scale um, uh, across space as well as time.
1: Isn't there also something about... um where you sit nationally in, in this? Because uh, I'm a Canadian looking at Canada now from the British vantage point. I mean, is there something about those of us who sort of grow up in settler societies on the, on the very edges of, or the remnants of the the edges of the empire that gives us a different view of this history and allows us to see it in, in, in sort of wider perspectives?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. And the short answer is yes. I'll give you one answer in this interview. Um, Yes, if you come from those global, uh, connected, uh, though also different, uh, settler societies, I think, yes, you are given something in the cultural mix that that, um, uh, might equip you to to think globally and connectedly in those ways about the world.
1: So the book concludes in a fairly... Post-Brexit sort of way. Um, were you finishing this as Brexit was kicking off?
0: Well, I wrote that those the last two or three pages that are an anti-Brexit diatribe. Um, <laughs> I wrote, I guess, a year to eighteen months ago, and mm. I thought about whether to allow myself to do that because I knew that that was the part of the book that would date. Mm. I hope the other 300 pages won't date in the same way, but I think it's not only something I feel very strongly, but it's something that I think follows absolutely directly and immediately from the history that I've been discussing is this this perspective on the Brexit situation. Um, so the point is that um, those final pages were written when the Brexit issue and the outcome were still open. And uh, it happened to be the case uh, that in the month after the book was published in November in the United Kingdom, uh, the issue stopped being open and became closed. And that's a shame, but we know that history goes on and actually in the longer term, everything is still open. So that's all good. So
1: having, you know, done so much to... Shape the debate and writing writing books that are are tremendously sort of original and thought provoking um, synthesis of of material and just you know boldly um, sort of new and revisionist. You conclude that British history really needs to be about proximity and movement um, rather than than isolation. What what do you think? Um, British history needs to do post
0: Brexit. What is its role? Well, I'm first of all, it's a few years since I've been in the United Kingdom, and so I I can't speak about this from the from a standpoint of knowledge that I would have if I was in the country and speaking to people. So I ha- I have to say I'm I'm a slightly ignorant o- outsider on this point. But my feeling about this now is what it has been. For well, many years, um, like at least two decades, which is that, I mean, it's not that British history needs to be about proximity and connection. It's that it is about, it has always been about proximity and connection, back uh, when the Romans invaded Britain two thousand years ago. And so, what do what do British people need to do? in thinking and about their history and, and talking about it and learning about it, this spectacular, powerful, world-shaping, rich history is get over themselves and this idea of their distinctness and s- separation um, and understand that the channel is so narrow and shallow you can see across it and you can swim across it and they need to get over themselves and understand that they belong, have always belonged to the regional environment and to the entire world. And it's that that makes English and British history so rich and so interesting and so important.
1: The book is called How the Old World Ended the Anglo Dutch American Revolution, 1500 to 1800. The author is Jonathan Scott, Professor of History at the University of Auckland. It's published by Yale University Press. And it deserves to be read by anybody who's interested in British history. Jonathan, I want to thank you for your time.
0: Thank you so much, Charles. Great to talk to you.